Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about how many characters you need and um, the construction of them inside inside and outside of fandom. So, uh, let's get started. I think that, um, let's, let's look at the novel first, the traditional novel. Kind of work our way out from that. You think, is that good? Yeah. Okay. Today is the... 23rd we are one day out from our um my neighbor's having a creepy ass ritual so and two days from having to have all your rough trade project files done true and then um and then it'll be my birthday and then rt will start rt will start the day after my birthday happy birthday to me okay he's a halloween baby that seems appropriate I was due with the first week of November, but I came early. So traditionally, when I am structuring a novel, the first thing I do is look at my protagonists. Um, no, I'm not a good witch. Let's be honest. If I had superpowers, I'd be a supervillain. <laughs> I'm only an island stronghold away from it already. <laughs> I think Dorothy learned that lesson for us a long time. So when somebody asks you if you're a good witch, you say no. <laughs> <laughs> I think her, I think her time in Oz would have been a lot more easier if everybody thought she was an evil witch. Um, so, okay. Anyways, when I'm looking at the construction of a novel, the first thing I do is pick up my protagonist. Um, and then I look at his or her um, connections. Do they have family are you know any members of their family going to appear in the novel do i need them i'll make a list of them anyway like i figure out how many siblings they got this is like for original character construction obviously um if you know both their parents are living if their parents are divorced are together this is actually very important your character depending on when your parent um, when, when your parents get a divorce as a person it changes and alters how you view relationships I mean, and it can be either or. Like, I've got a cousin whose mom's been married six times. She has vowed on her magic to never, ever get married. She has, <laughs> she has so far succeeded. Meanwhile, um, my mother had several marriages, and my response to that was to only get married once. It's one shot of that. And if it gets messed up, then I'm never doing it again. So... Your character will have different, and and, and sometimes, you know, I have a couple of cousins who followed most deeply in their mother's circuit. Like, they treat men like they're disposable. So you need to figure out how your character responded to the the health of their parents' marriage. Did they have a good marriage? Um, is, it, um, um, is one of their parents dead? I mean, all that's really important to the construction of your character, right? So, and then you look at your characters outside of relationships, outside of their family. Um, who's their best friend? Who do they hate? Who's their arch nemesis? Who's their love interest? And go from there. And after you make your characters, and you've got all your characters kind of situated, and that, and that might seem overwhelming to a pantser. I'm sorry. Not really. I was going to say, are you? I was going to say, are you? But you need to know, I mean, I need to know these characters. This is how I do it, right? So I got all my characters together. I make character profiles, big ones for my main characters, and mini profiles for my my 
my other characters. And if they become a bigger element in my story as I'm doing my zero draft, I will go back and build a bigger character profile for them. So if I don't need to know much about them, then there's no point in wasting a lot of time on their profile. You, should, you see what I mean? Um, but if I'm building a series, like in in Fall for You, it's the start of a series. And so I have a lot of background characters that I have big profiles for because I plan to use them later. Mm-hmm. Like Lawrence Harper is going to be um, in a future novella because um, he gets bitten um, against his will. And his um his mom is dead and his dad has been a widow um, a, a widower for 20 years um she was the love of his life he's 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 never going to do that again he's happy as he is living with you know living on his farm lawrence um left the marines um came home to take care of his dad and take care of his dad's land and joined um the county police department because the sheriff was also a fellow former marine so he trusted um, the work environment. Uh, he'll get bitten um, on the job. And uh, so I had to know all about him. So when you guys see him for the first time, he's been shot. And Riley is giving him first aid on the middle of a highway, you know, because he's been shot um, during a traffic stop. And so you don't really know much about him. Except that he jokes with Riley about how... Um, yeah, Law, because it's sexy that he prefers to be called Law instead of Lawrence or Larry. <laughs> um, and, um, and he also jokes with Riley and says that, you, that he can't undress him because he's the sheriff's hot doctor. So, you know, it's like, so, you, so you, you learn just a little bit about him and then you meet his dad later in the, in the lobby of the, of the hospital. So you don't know much, but he's, I imagine if you think about characters in that book, he would kind of be one that you thought about because of the little details that I gave you. He would stand out amongst characters that I didn't give a whole lot of information on. You, you see what I mean? And that's what you do when you're looking at subsidiary characters that will come back. That was the wrong word. Secondary? Secondary. That's an S word. Secondary characters that aren't really important to your overall plot, but will have play later in the series. So that's something to keep in mind when you're series building, um, when you're looking at your character profiles and what you're going to do with them. So how many characters do you actually need in an average romance novel? Full characters, you need two or three, depending on your relationship. <laughs> the rest are all secondary. Mm-hmm. They fill out your worlds because your characters don't exist in a, in a vacuum. So y- you have to expand out your word world. It's also really important to keep track of characters that only appear once. Like if it's somebody who's filling their tea at the diner and one of them gives that person a name, you need to draw it down somewhere so you'll keep track of it. It could be in your um, in your series Bible because it might come up later. And then like you don't want to have a reader go, well, how many people actually work in this diner? Because the person, the, the, the same person has never once refilled his drink. Well, and uh, yeah. And also when you have the opportunity to reuse a character, you should. So, yeah. like, when it comes to, like, those tertiary characters who may only appear on screen one time, if you're going to bother giving them a name, you know, if, if it's always Brenda at the diner, you know, there's no point in introducing Brenda and Tom and Jack and, you know, Antoinette. It's just, 
just just stick with Brenda. They happen to always have Brenda, unless there's like a plot device where they go in one day and oh well, where's Brenda? Well, we haven't seen her in two or three days, and oh, you're writing a supernatural novel, and she's a victim of you know the monster of the week. So, so yeah, I mean, it's good to keep track of them, and also so you don't name them the same thing or close to the same thing, Damien, Darren, Darian. I mean, I I, once named five different characters in a novel, John. They were tertiary characters, characters like the bartender was named John, the cab driver was named John, there was a cop at the desk named John. It was just ridiculous. There were too many Johns. Well, Achille and Feely, they did that rhyming thing, you know, for Tolkien. He liked to rhyme his names. now, John's but, actually a super popular name, but you don't want to lean into that because it just causes confusion for your reader. It's like, how many jobs does John have? Is he okay? <laughs> Is he getting right. enough sleep? <laughs> but also, you also want to avoid having all of your tertiary, your secondary or tertiary characters have similar sounding names, like the Damien. Like, if you had all of your secondary, you know, um, Damien, Darian. Dorian. It's like, and I, I use that example because I read a book where that there were three sec, three or four secondary characters that were like Damien, Darian, Dorian, and another D word. It was like all starts with D and end with A N, and it was like well, that's just confusing. What was his name? I don't remember his name, but he would say, "And this is my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl." <laughs> I mean, you can make a joke of it, right? You can make a joke of it. If, but if you don't, the thing is, sometimes authors don't even notice that they're doing that. They just cast everybody with the same names or similar or variants of a name. Um, but also, I think when it comes to when you're fleshing out your character bio, so like you start with your main character, right? You got to think really hard about how many siblings am I going to give them? Because for every every sibling you give your main character, you have to know that per, that sibling's marital status, how many kids they have, their kids' names, their spouse's name, how many how many siblings their spouse has, how old are the kids? I mean, so so while it might be realistic that somebody could have you know ten kids, they could have you know ten siblings. I mean, my mom's. Uh, one of 10, these things actually happen. Um, do you want to have to actually fill out that much detail and know that much detail? Can your reader absorb the name of nine siblings? Why would you do that to yourself? I mean, are you going to be doing things at a family reunion? Um, and you want to, it's easier, like if you're doing a family reunion in your story, family reunion scene, it's a lot easier to deal with cousins that have no name than a bunch of siblings that aren't introduced. So it's just like, think through what is what am I doing to myself and how how hard am I making this whole process on myself? I mean, yes, it is true that in real life, people have their same name. I have a relatively uncommon name and I was once in a room with three of us. Yeah, I went to school with two like me, and one had my exact name. So that happens in real First life. First and middle. I'm like, wow. <laughs> but, what are we do? but just because it happens in real life doesn't mean you should do it in your book. So you don't want just, to. It causes reader confusion. Right. You don't want to create reader confusion just because it's realistic. <laughs> That's crazy cakes. 
it's sort of like there are things we do. There are all kinds of things we do in stories that are not actually full on realistic because we're we don't want to confuse or because it's easier on the reader or because it's more enjoyable to read or whatever. Reality isn't always your goal. And, but uh, that's actually a really good point because there's something that happens in novels and dialogues that really doesn't honestly happen in what's regular that? everyday what's conversation. What's that, Kara? And that's, that's <laughs> exactly, exactly. How often do you say somebody's name when you're talking to them? Over and over and over again in the same conversation. I hardly, I mean, I only do it to Jillian when I'm being an <laughs> asshole, right? <laughs> So, I mean, you can you can go several months without saying your friend's name to their face. Now, if you're having a conversation about them, you use their name. But when you're talking to them, you don't. But in traditional, but in dialogue, in the novel, you need to, it, it helps your reader keep track of who's speaking. Yeah. It's part of that whole dialogue and action tag process. It's, it's giving the dialogue context. And it's very important. But you still have to limit yourself because you do it too much. It starts to be like people don't speak that way. So you have to balance it to where it's not noticeable to the reader that you're giving them these cues, even though it's not realistic speech pattern versus because the minute they start noticing you're doing it, you've done it too much. And like I've seen people who will you know address the, the person by name, like in a conversation, every other every other paragraph. And it's like that's it's too much. It's jumping out. So reality but reality isn't always your goal with some of this stuff and so unless you're gonna like i said make a joke about it that like you know when we get together for the family reunion i have three cousins you know from different branches of the family who all have the same name and you know it's 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 the christine extravaganza at the family reunion so there's a moment in um lanty and legacy where dean bates's brother has joined the expedition um, in the second illegal wave. And John has a moments when, when he's assigning tasks in the gate room because he's just using their last names, right? And he's like, Bates, Bates Jr. <laughs> you know, it's like it becomes a thing, right? Because he's not using their rank. He's just using their names. Because at that point, they don't even have rank because um, they've all left the service they've all resigned and so it it was like a moment when i was like what the hell bates jr and it just it just came out of my mouth and so that poor kid got stuck with it yep that's it, it. it came out of john's mouth it, it came out of my of, of my of my fingers but yeah and then it's and then it's a done deal right yeah. that you kid have will be to... bates jr for the rest of his very long life when you've got multiple characters of the same gender in a scene, somebody just mentioned this in the chat room, um, you have to manage that very carefully so that because you can't use a whole lot of he and his and him, pronouns are not going to help you because you wind up with that unclear antecedent problem. But you also don't want to use too many epitaphs. Is that how you say that word? Epithets. Is that how you say that word? Really? <laughs> yes, you really say it. Epitaph. Ep epitaph is something else entirely. That's when you. That's what goes on somebody's grave, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Either way, you don't need to use um, too many of those either, because there's just so many times I can actually stand to see Daniel Jackson referred to as the archaeologist. Oh God! Especially from somebody who's in a personal relationship with him, it's just no. But you have to be careful about. It, it, you have to, it does take a deft hand to be able to use someone's name over and over again 
and mix it with the pronouns in a way that it's clear who you're speaking about when there are multiple people of the same gender. And this is not just a problem of something that like, um, you know, people who write same sex romance run into. It's a problem that you'll run into just in the course of having multiple people of the same gender in your scene, because it will happen. So you just have to, you know, that's where you have to be prepared to edit yourself because you're probably going to overuse names. You know, you're going to use their names too much to try to make it clear who's speaking or who's being spoken about. And then you're probably going to have some unclear antecedents and you just have to be willing to go in and, and edit and take a critical eye to your beats um, to make sure that they're clear. Yeah, and the same thing happens with the, with military. If you've got a bunch of people the same rank, you can't just be calling everybody colonel. So anyway, so the, when you're looking at like how many characters do you need in, in a novel or even a novel series, because inconceivably, in if you're planning out a novel series, you're going to want to look at who you're going to need for the whole series. Um, just be careful not to give yourself more. Don't give yourself too few characters because you don't want somebody's life to look bereft or anemic. Um but, but you also you go, but you need to be careful because wasn't it Senna who said that um, she'd never write another demon's verse again? His dark materials. Uh, I don't know because keeping track of everybody and their demon, and all the demons had really distinct personalities, and they all spoke, and she—it was a nightmare. <laughs> apparently, and I can see that. I can see how that would be a fucking nightmare because you you would you would double your character count. And sometimes in a uh, novel, you can have two or three main characters, depending on your relationship and depending on the structure of your novel. Um, and then, like, I don't know, 15 or 20 tertiary characters. And I mean, you go from 25 to 50, just like that in a demon AU. And yeah, and then some, some stories i mean some uh, universes lend themselves to having a lot more characters or some types of stories that lend themselves to having more characters and you just have to balance that very carefully to make sure that you are not um like even honestly even if you this is where it comes in is first don't give yourself more characters than you need which is of course the topic of the podcast but sometimes when you do realistically need a lot of characters like let's say or potentially there's a lot of people on screen like let's say you've had a natural disaster you're writing an ncis story there's been a natural disaster of some sort and there are evacuations going on and there's like dozens or potentially hundreds of people around you have to really kind of rein yourself in you want to give the broad brush strokes about who's there and who's doing what um without having like everybody have a speaking part or god help us a point of view but let's say there's like multiple team leads helping out with like evacuations or medical or whatever instead of having each of those people check in with your main character you could just have like a summary paragraph that talks about he's talked to these three or four people so the audience knows that those people are there and then you move on and you have him you have the actual on-screen discussion be with the person who has an important thing to tell him or her um so that's a case of where you might realistically have a lot of characters on screen, but you have to very carefully manage who actually has a speaking part and who actually is being thought about and referenced by your main character, because it can get overwhelming very quickly when you have 
too much going on, too many characters. I read something that had like a family reunion thing going on. And yes, realistically, the family would have had all of the family there. But the author was trying to be too balanced to every single character. And every one of the like 25 or 30 people said something. They all had dialogue. And the problem with giving everybody dialogue in that kind of scenario, or even having everybody's in the scene, is that it actually is, to me, more awkward that somebody would say just one thing and then never speak again than that you gloss over the introduction. Well, you're also diluting your POV. Very much. It, it's just, it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's hard to be, hard to keep up. Um, and you also, again, when we talk about the demon fix with like the, the His Dark Materials cross fusions, you have double the number of speaking parts all the time. Also, keeping this is really actually, I read a Hannibal fic um, that had um, demons in it, but the author, the uh, I'm pretty sure that there was an adult who had two different demons because she obviously didn't write them down. It was kind of annoying. Um, so I'm not gonna talk. About, I'm not gonna name it or anything because I don't want to shame the author. But there was like, I mean, obviously Franklin. He's a he's um, he's a character in Hannibal. And at one in one scene he had a duck, and in another scene he had some kind of rodent. Hmm. He's an adult. His 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 demon wouldn't. His demon would not be changing. No, well, but she if it is not unsettled. If it's unsettled as an adult, that should be explained. So you've either got a contradiction that you've you've given this character to demons, or you failed to explain a critical element that this person is unsettled as an adult, which is important. Right. But it's, so, you know, beyond that, beyond that little mistake, which which kind of really threw me out, I enjoyed it because um, Hannibal's um, demon settled late, and he was ostracized for it. He was um, like fairly old in his teenage years where Will's demons settled when he was like seven or eight. Um, and she she was a coyote and she was really, really ultra protective. And, and the teachers were all like, is something happening at home? Well, I know you assholes. He's being bullied at school. <laughs> That's why his demons settled early and why she's so protective. Anyways, but yes, it was really interesting. That part was really interesting how they did that. And um, um, the balance of, of Hannibal still being who he was and um, his demon. Anyways, <clears throat> but, but the duck thing threw me. The duck rat, the rat duck. The rat duck, yeah. But yeah, so I would, you know, honestly, if, if I was writing a, a, a His Dark Materials AU, I probably would gloss over, but keep track of other people's demons and really only have, only give personalities to, to my main character's demons. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, most of the successful His Dark Materials fusions I've read have been... Um, there, the, the the author was really careful not to have all of the demons have a speaking part. Uh, and, this, and the thing is, you just have to be careful that you 
don't give every single character in your story necessarily dialogue because people can be mentioned by name and not actually speak because it can actually to me be very jarring when a character when you give them casual conversation or a casual line of dialogue and then during the important parts of a conversation they never speak up which is also why sometimes if you're having a really critical conversation you want to minimize the number of people who are even present for it because they just don't go smoothly you know a very important conversation about like let's say a city evacuation or something you know it would be like if i were handling like that we're going to evacuate washington dc or something and if i were um um doing that i would probably have it be a private briefing between two or three people and then have a line that they went and disseminated that information to the other team leads rather than trying to write a scene where you're disseminating complicated information to a bunch of people who are realistically going to have questions and that way also because when you start naming off people who are in a scene don't name people that you don't need to name it's also important to look critically at your at your plan and and if you're in the second draft stage and you've got i mean oftentimes you've got a character in your narrative already that could be doing something that you've got a tertiary character doing and they serve no other purpose for that i think a prime example of that would be jenny weasley in the chamber of secrets Literally anybody else could have done that. Her role in the Chamber of Secrets had zero relevance. Anyone could have been writing in that diary. And could have been opening the chamber. And could have been letting out the basilisk. There was no reason specifically that it had to be her. Not one. It would actually have been more interesting if it had been Ron. Yeah. It would have made a lot more sense for why Harry was down there. Why he didn't he even so... he, he barely knew Jenny. The only reason he went down there is because Ron was so upset. Mm-hmm. But it could have easily been. I mean, his interest in going down into the chamber could have been explained any. I mean, in, in any different way, his his motivation could have been changed. Um, could I imagine Ron writing in a diary? Absolutely. Ron, who is often overlooked, who's never given anything special, um, never gives anything new, certainly ha- suddenly has this, this diary that's never been written in before, as far as he can tell, that is listening to him and validating him and telling him all the things that he wants to hear. Yeah, I think he would have written in it. I think because of what it was, he would have been compelled to write in it. And then he would have been enamored. And just as seduced as Jenny was. Mm-hmm. Maybe more. Because yeah, he would have been off. That diary would have been offering Ron validation that he'd never gotten from anybody else. And where it fostered an immense obsession with Harry Potter and Jenny, it could have fostered an immense hatred in Ron. The jealousy would have been amplified. Just like it amplified Jenny's obsession with Harry. So yeah, I mean, it could have been literally anybody else. Her Anybody already diaries, named. 
serve no no special purpose. So she really didn't. I mean, she was unnecessary in the novel. And so when you have a character like that in your novel that is basically unnecessary and you're giving them actions that a character you've already established who has more weight in your novel, why are you doing it? Slash and burn, baby. Slash and burn. Don't be afraid of it. Because it will make a tighter narrative for you. Every character you add dilutes your narrative. The more characters you have, the more inconcise your narrative will run. The more POVs you add, the less meaning your narrative will have. Because the more POVs you have, the less intimate your POVs are. You don't want to spend, if, if you've got a 50,000 word novel, 5,000 words of that devoted to introducing people and keeping track of you know, characters is too much. So, but you also have to be careful about not going too lean on it, too. So, like, if you've got four characters that you're working with, like, you've got, let's say, two primary characters and two secondary characters, can they all realistically be only children? I mean, it happens, but it probably is going to stick out, oddly, that they would all be, if they met under chance circumstances, that they all would be only children. Um, so, maybe you can't get away with no siblings but you might be able to have two of them be only children it's just something to think about but i would never give a primary character like 13 siblings it's just a nightmare waiting to happen it unless is, they were you know all split up in foster care and he doesn't remember them it's really or, tragic or unless they he has a bad relationship with all of them and he doesn't talk to any of them he's a oh, scapegoat yeah. he got disowned because he was gay and he, and, and he left the mormon church Right, so it's just, Which is realistic because if if you leave the Mormon Church, they'll um they'll ostracize your ass. Yeah. <laughs> so, thirteen characters that you're not actually playing to name out that are just kind of like you know they're part of your internal motivation for your character and your character's internal conflict. If you, if you have thirteen characters that serve that purpose, that's fine. But if it's characters that you would realistically need to name, like let's say you've got you know you've got your romantic pairing, and they're talking you know about each other's families, which is a conversation people would have. And he's like, oh yeah, my you know my mom and dad are divorced. You know my dad lives here, my mom lives here. I have a good life with them. And then there's my thirteen brothers and sisters, and you're like, oh yeah, and I love them, and I see them all the time. And then you what are you going to introduce them all? Talk about how many kids they have, what kind of work they do. No, it, by the time you get done with that, it's two chapters later and <laughs> no one remembers what the story's about. So it might not make sense for, you know, all of your characters to be only children, but you just, even if it might be realistic that one of them had a ton of siblings, you're probably putting a lot of work um, for yourself to, to make it a huge number like that, even if, even if it mirrors reality in some fashion. So, but yeah, just, just pay attention when you're, I mean, it's, you'll honestly, especially if you're a pantser, pay attention to how many characters you have going. Keep a character list running on the side, in a notebook, in a document, in an Excel spreadsheet, wherever you're doing it. Keep track of how many characters you're throwing into your narrative as you write, because um, like, like we've already said, it can be, I mean, you could either have too few or too many. Um and it can really impact the structure of your narrative. And you won't notice it really until you're in your second draft. Um, 
and then you have to do an immense amount of rewriting, which can be very frustrating. And then your project's been six months sitting on your hard drive. I'm not speaking from experience <laughs> because I didn't pants it, but it's still a hot mess. <laughs> well, actually, yes, you need to remember who does what in your story, but you also need to minimize focusing on details like that. It's sort of like focusing the on on you know on all the on every single it's one thing to talk about something being disrobed and focus on maybe major elements of clothing but if you focus on every element of clothing that's been disrobed somebody's going to notice that you forgot the left sock um so you guys have to minimize detail that's irrelevant but that is completely separate from characters but yes if you have a character do something you need to remember that that character did it it's just is that character doing that actually significant um if it's not significant, don't put that detail in. Especially if it's an action on the on the part of a of a, a tertiary character, or maybe even a secondary character. Um, but yeah, I I definitely agree. When you're because sometimes I do make decisions about especially tertiary characters a little bit on the fly. I get my first, my primary and secondary characters unlocked before I get going. But sometimes I make decisions about the tertiary characters kind of as I go. And you have to document it when you do it. You know, what function do they serve? Why did you need them? What did you name them so that you don't rename them later? Um, and sometimes a character isn't even a tertiary character. They're just somebody that you mentioned by name and who never has any screen time. But for some reason, you need to mention them. But you have to keep track of that details. What, what, especially if you named them um, or gave any information about them, you got to keep got to keep up with that. And I see too many people who don't keep up with that. Who, um, like a character's name changes multiple times. It's like, wasn't this character's name Betty a little while ago? Unless this is a different a different person who's exactly like Betty. <laughs> who who serves the exact same function as Betty. And really, Betty's a really old-fashioned name. That's another point. When you're naming your characters, look at their age and try to pick age-relevant names. You can look up information about what the most common names were by year. Um, and maybe you're looking for an uncommon name in that year. So, or maybe you're not looking for the most common, but somewhere like any, I would think anything in the top 200 names of that year for, for that, for a given country could be something that is um, realistic. Mm-hmm. Um. I create uh, my profile sheets are actually Word documents, but um, I've been sometimes I work in OneNote. It just depends on the project and how I feel about it. But I do try to keep a character database where, um, especially if characters are crossing over into different books, so I can keep track of them and what they are and what they do. Um, it's 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 just very important because you don't want to end up having um several tertiary characters having the same name as your main character in a new book. Like say you've had this new, this tertiary character named John in three different books and he's doing his thing. Um, but then you've also introduced another character named John. I'm just using John as a placeholder, right? So you, you go to your third book and you had it in your head that you were going to pair these two characters, but you forgot you'd name them both John. And those other two books are already published. <laughs> <laughs>
And now you have deeply hurt your own feelings. <laughs> but yeah, you could, I mean, don't get too wrapped around the axle with names, but it's pretty easy to just have a list that's appropriate for your year and scan down and go, okay, that that's what I'm going to go with. Or, or if you're doing something historical, look up names that are appropriate for ancient, like, I actually have a list of most common names from ancient Rome when I'm working on Harry Potter stories, because of course it's going to need to be ancient Rome. <laughs> whatever makes you happy, but also whatever makes you comfortable when you are um, organizing your, um, your, your world building materials and character profiles are part of your world building materials. Um, you need to organize them in a way that makes sense to you and is comfortable to you and um, that will be easy for you to use on the fly when you're writing. Yeah. I used to try doing like that kind of stuff in OneNote. It, it stopped working for me. Um, but on the other hand, I should have a long time ago, because I'll, I'll keep all the information for a single story together, but I should have started keeping a name's database years ago because otherwise I wouldn't have had like four original characters named Alex. Four separate original characters named Alex. <laughs> Obviously she's got a favorite name. I do. I do. And it's Alex. So that's what you, you just gotta you just gotta keep track of that kind of stuff. But when it comes to like if when you're looking at your story and you're trying to figure out how many characters do I need for this story? Well if it's fan fiction first it, in, in some ways, it's a little bit easier. I have to say, the character thing is a little bit easier to manage in fan fiction. And I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks, at least for me, was character issues when moving to original fiction. Which is funny, because I didn't start writing fan fiction. I started writing original fiction. And I never had this kind of angst when I sat down to work on original fiction when I was younger. But I do now, because after all these years in fandom, I basically have been able to abuse the number of characters in the story because they're all recognizable characters to people. So I don't have to practice any kind of like, this is a bizarre phrase, but I don't have to have any economy of character because they're recognizable characters so that I can just throw them in by name and people know a lot about them. They can visualize them. They can understand their inflection and and so it, it it kind of can make you a little bit, mm, is lazy the right word? I think about, it's the right word. I do it. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 kind of a mean word, but, you know, you're queen of me this evening. Um, I am. It, it, is, it makes you a little bit lazy about your character craft. So because you can just throw a character in, you can just have a recognizable, you know, tertiary character from, you know, Stargate SG-1 canon, you know, walk in it can just, it can be um, the guy who dials the gate. What's his name? Walter. Walter. So Walter could come and do something. People instantly can visualize him. They know what he sounds like. They know who he is. They know what function he fills. And that's all information you haven't had to fill in. So you can just have a whole bunch of extra characters filling a role in your story that doesn't feel like it's overwhelming because fandom already knows who they are. So it is a little bit, it, you can get into some like bad habits or, you know, some basic lazy character craft when it comes to. I can already, fandom. I, I see somebody already writing an email, but if Canon can have all these humongous n number of her, her tertiary characters, why can't I? 
Well, here's the deal. Stargate is a TV show. It is spread over 10 years. It is episodic. And when you often write fan fiction for Stargate, you write a novel. Or a novella. And the structure of a novel or a novella is vastly different than the structure of an episodic t television series. That's the long and short of it. Yeah. Also, the amount of material that you would have to have written to accomplish the same amount. Because we don't get all those characters in the first episode. They were introduced so, over time. Right. They're introduced over 10 years. Which if you average if you average 20 episodes a year, that's still 200 episodes. So, setting aside the difference between episodes and a, and a novel... Um, I will also say that you get more characters on screen than you get in a book. Because you can see in a, in a, in a, in a second, you can assess what somebody's role is a lot of times with a tertiary character. You don't need them by name. You know that they're an airman. You could, if you know enough about rank insignia, you may know exactly what their rank is. Um, and from a couple of words they say in passing, you don't need to know their name, but you understand what their function is. You know how they move, how they speak, how they sounded, what they looked like. You, and, and in a book, you can't convey all that. So you can have a bunch of extraneous characters wandering around in a TV show, and people in 30 seconds are going to have interpreted what all those 20 people in a room are there for and what the situation is about. And it might take you three or four pages to convey that, and it would potentially dilute your narrative. It so, would also murder your pace. And your pace would they be would have shit. to call in the FBI to investigate the crime scene you had created. <laughs> right. So you get um, fewer characters in, in in written anything written than you do in something that's visual. That's just the way it works because. You can imply it. You can say, you know, they walked into the room with 20 people with expressions of fear on their face, waiting for the update on, you know, the evacuation procedures. You can convey that, but you can't get into the level of detail you would get visually because you would have your narrative would be so boring. It'd be so dry and detailed and you wouldn't even be able to keep track of what was going on. So, yeah. So it, your writing, so we're talking about writing. So when you're writing, you really do have to practice char character economics and of a fashion or character conservation or something and make sure you aren't using more characters than you absolutely have to have. And then you have to, well, you have to keep track of them. But you have to also, if you're doing, going from fandom to original fiction, you really do, you cannot apply the same rules of character craft that you've been using in fandom to original fiction, because it won't work. You can't just have a random character appear on screen and give nothing about them. Someone mentioned once that a lot, to, a lot of times my original characters um, don't seem out of place in my narrative and my fan fiction, and some of them didn't even realize they were, in fact, original characters, Matt Shepard being um, the most popular of my OCs to have been mistaken for a canon character. It It's because I did a profile on him and I pushed him into the narrative 
in such a way that he didn't stand out like a sore thumb. And this takes practice. I, I didn't come out of the gate doing this. Um, it takes practice to get a character uh, situated in a, in, in especially in fan fiction where, um, where original characters often stick out really difficultly to the reader. It's usually a stumbling block, you know, block for a reader. They're like, well, who played that guy on the show? I don't remember that guy on the show. Harry Eyeball. Is this a Mary Sue? <laughs> <laughs> Is this a self-insert? <laughs> and no, Matt's neither. But he is, I, I had to make him breathe. I had to know what his, you know, what he hated and what he loved and um, how he felt about his brother. Cause the first time you meet him is in what might've been and what his experiences were and um, what his emotional landscape looked like coming to Colorado, having watched his brother get shot in the chest three times on national television while he was active duty. He was active duty. Matt was in the field when John took those bullets on TV. And so um, Patrick was in his office. David was actually asleep and had to be woken up by somebody in his um, unit. Hi, Dad. <laughs> I'll be 45 on my birthday fairly soon. Um, and Matt was in the field. And his commander called him back. Um, he was he was in flight because he is a pilot, and he, and his commander called him into his office and said, "Your brother John, um, there was an incident, and he just down. We're, we're going to talk about it, and then you're going to Colorado." So I knew where they were, and and what they were going through, and what they were experiencing when that when that news footage hit the TV. So Matt didn't see it for several hours after the fact. And David was woke up for a replay. And Patrick was in his office and his admin came. And the, the same admin that eventually betrayed him in Ring of Fire. And almost got him killed. Is the one who brought him the information and said, sir, you need to turn the TV on. Your oldest son, John, has just been shot in the chest. So... You know, I had to know where they were and what they were thinking and what they were doing when that happened because that was their entry, their entry into what might have been. And so, but you know, so knowing where your characters come from and how they're going to land in your narrative is just really important, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> Yeah, you you gotta know what you're doing with with them, why you have them, and especially on critical events. Um, and honestly, I I can't stress enough that when there's a critical event, having all of your characters in one room, all of them, primary, secondary, and tertiary, and having them all, it, it using a device like a plot device where you have like a group talk about it and then disseminate the information like I mentioned earlier. The reason why that's better is because it's not realistic and it will sit weird to the reader if you have all of these people who are equally invested in the circumstance not saying anything. Because the reality is is that in circumstances like 
that, like a critical briefing or um, something like, people are going to have questions. They're going to say something. It's not always going to be one person speaking unless they're ordered to keep their yap shut. How I dealt with it in Atlantean Legacy, the entire expedition is in the room. Um, and they've all been given the information on what Landry has done to them. Um, and I was when I was looking at the landscape of that scene and how I wanted to structure it, it was like a funeral. Everything was really quiet and there was a lot of grief in the room. And Bates was angry. Because they had lied to his mama. And it was just like, and everybody kind of just focused on his anger because it felt tangible. And often anger is more tangible than grief, which is why we often fall from grief into anger really quickly because it's easier to be angry than it is to be that overwhelming hurt that comes with grief. So focusing on his anger, all of them focused on it because it was easier than dealing with their own grief. Um, and that was, I structured that scene like a funeral on purpose because I couldn't figure out how to get them all in the same room and it not be chaos otherwise. But you also have the other thing that was working for you there is you do have some degree of military, de military decorum mm -hmm. um, where I think that military people are very used to letting one person or one or two people do the majority of the talking. And also, they, they'd been out there for a very long time. They were very, um, they'd just come down off a of victory. Yeah. But they, they, they'd had, they'd been kind of beaten down, but now they were in a place of power. So something they hadn't had before. And they have this beautiful alien city that's waking up for them. So while they've been discarded by Earth, they're being embraced by Atlantis. And it had to be very seductive. Yeah. So what you do, and there's, there are ways you can make certain scenes work. And when it's something, it's like chaos, people's lives are on the line, we've got to evacuate. You're not going to have a quiet, controlled briefing. So you can't use the... You know, because there are a lot of things I did at work, you know, when, when your vice president comes in the room to talk to you and explain some stuff to you, you don't have a free for all. On the other hand, if there's a problem between me and my 15 or 20 cousins, believe me, I'm not doing most of the talking. It is a free for all. It is yelling and it's screaming and it's shouting. And, and nobody's just sitting there waiting for somebody to explain shit. People are jumping the gun and asking questions and misunderstanding on purpose. Um Always on purpose. Always on the deliberate misunderstanding. Um, so you have to know the audience, know, know, know who's on screen and what's realistic for their circumstances. It is not ever realistic for there to be a big family drama and only two people. Unless you've got a really like. Unless the others are wearing ball gags. Well, you could have an odd, like a very autocratic controlling father figure mm -hmm. in that kind of situation, but that implies something that you may not want to imply. You better be careful that Ugly. you know what, what you, you know what you're implying about about the, the patriarch of that family if you have that kind of dynamic. But generally, so you could do something in a military environment that you can't get away with at a family reunion scene, right? So that's why if there's going to be, that's why you might want to take your big reveal to a smaller group and then go, okay. And then like, you know, somebody says, okay, I will go tell the rest of the pack or whatever. Cause sometimes in Teen Wolf, you can have a lot of characters running around a lot. And when you have a big ensemble cast like that, 
you have to be careful about who all is sitting there for a conversation. So like, you know, Noah and Derek and Styles can talk about something and then Noah says he's going to go talk to the pack or Derek says he'll talk to the pack or whatever that way, or they'll talk to the pack in the morning. And that way, you know, that the information got disseminated, you, the reader know the information got disseminated without having to have the whole pack on screen. Because when you're writing in fan fiction, sometimes canon tells you how many characters you've got. So if you've got a big cast from canon, be careful about adding a ton of OCs. Don't add more than you absolutely need. Things you might reasonably need. Competent magic user who's not Deaton might need that. Um, do you need a bunch of extra werewolves running around? Eh, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, are they cannon fodder? Um, do you have to kill a whole bunch of werewolves and don't want to kill your own? <laughs> so, just but even then, you don't want that many characters. You can use one character to represent a huge magical world outside of Beacon Hills. Um, Billy did it to an astounding degree in what was the one with Booker? Duty of the Living. Duty of the Living. Booker represents a huge magical world outside of Beacon Hills. His power resonates and he's like, he's supposed to be really old and really powerful. One of the most powerful magical users in the United States. And if you look at him, you have to look at what spreads out behind him. If he's the most powerful and ma magical user, except for Styles, then what can the others do? And how many are there? And it's like, it's, you can use one character like that to really expand your world without having to throw 3,000 people onto the screen. I do it with Hiro Ito. Hiro Ito, Ito oh, I'm never going to get that right, represents um, a larger magical world to Harry Potter. He represents um, different spell casting, um, different magical creatures. Uh, magical disciplines um all of that because and it only took one character so you don't need to use you can you can use one character to deep effect or you can use five characters to little to to little to no effect yeah you just don't want to throw because I mean, somebody like Styles is going to have, and, and it is, it, he'll, he's going to eventually have a lot of magical users around him. And the representative of the future that he, he, his future in terms of magical users around him was Booker. Because there are three magical users I introduced in that story, and I thought about each of them, what I needed them for. Um, and Tess was the family member slash mentor who gets him on his path. Clara is the woman, she's giving up her title to Styles, she's passing on the torch so she can't represent what Styles is going to be in magic because she's sort of he's her replacement and then Booker is the representative of Styles' role in magic and where he will fit um, but you could have thrown 20 characters in that scene and not have had the same impact of those three right and I also didn't ever have them on. The only time they're on screen together, um, Booker and Tess are, actually don't have dialogue because the times when Tess has dialogue, the other two aren't around. When Booker and, and when Booker and 
styles are having their major meeting. The other two aren't around. And it's because I didn't want to dilute. Um, I didn't want a magical confab to dilute what each person's role was. And it also serves to remind the reader of the role that styles is growing into. Top banana. That he will, you know, that he will stand with them and in some circumstances be over them um, in judgment. And it, it's, it's very clear that they all recognize this in him before he does. Because they're giving him all the, like, Booker gives him all the space styles needs. And I, well, when you first meet Booker, you get the impression that he's not of the sort to give anybody space unless Any they space. earned it. Yeah. And Styles got that space from the get-go, which which speaks to Styles' future in in the in the magical world that he's living in. It's very it's very good character work there, by the Thank way. You. Thank you very much. So you don't need. I mean, sometimes one character is all you need to portray a certain part of a big piece of world building. And Booker stands out for that for me in that in that story because it's just like when I saw him on screen, it was I mean I was just I was just like, oh, yeah. well, <laughs> Tess and Clara represent a very personal Styles per, Styles personal connection to magic, whereas mm -hmm. Booker represented the magical world really. It's very attractive. He's huge in the narrative, and not you know not his um his presence is huge, which speaks to the greater magical world that um he comes from. Yeah, Booker was my name clusterfuck too because this is where my name database. I, I kept I named him Devin Saint Saint James, and I I kept looking at that on the screen, and I went, why is that name familiar? And I realized I have another character. I have an OC named Devin St. James in another story and I was like shit I can't have two OCs it's one thing to have three Alexes or four Alexes running around it's another thing entirely to have two people with the exact same name who are completely the other one's played by Charlie Hunan so I'm like these are not the same character not remotely that's hilarious <laughs> so I switched it from St. James to St. John and then I was like hmm what am I going to do for his first name though? And so I was looking up names that were popular about a hundred years ago. And Booker was the name that stuck out to me. It's a great name. It was a great choice. It was like, boom. And sometimes the name is really, I mean, if sometimes a name will give you everything, I mean, it really can really define your character. If I say the name Esther, what do you think? I think, I think old lady, white hair, sundress like church dress kind of thing that's what i think of irma uh gardening gloves and a straw hat okay think of the meanest little old lady name you can think of what would it be beatrice <laughs> uh, but yeah i mean they those, you know, you can, Dolores, yeah, I mean, names, um, names in themselves, because of um, popular culture, um, can, can have deep meaning. I don't imagine any, any person in the Harry Potter generation, or just outside of it, will ever look at the name Dolores and not go, ugh. <laughs> I 
Yeah, they they did a service. They needed to make up a name for her because they did a service or use some ancient Roman name like they usually do. So they didn't do a disservice to every Dolores out there. Esmeralda will forever be that evil mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it also to me Esmeralda also conjures witchy to me. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just evil mother-in-law. It's witchy. So, Winifred, witchy. <laughs> but yeah, so names have power. So when you're naming your, um, yeah, Endora was the mother-in-law. Esmeralda was the aunt. Right, right. Yeah. Although Endora, even though, yes, I do think of Bewitched, I also think of Endor, which makes me think of Star Wars. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. Esmeralda was the batty old aunt who couldn't get her spells right. Right? No, no, that was Clara. Clara couldn't get her spells right. Right. It's been a long time since I watched Bewitched. I should watch it. But Esmeralda was one of her aunts. I just don't remember which one. Marianne, farm girl, wholesome. Uh, you got to go to Gilligan's Island, right? Right. Exactly. Right. And j- same thing for Ginger. We, if we, if you don't go to to Gilligan's Island, you're married. Well, Mary Jane. I think we all go somewhere else these days. Yeah, because. No, I'm thinking more along the lines of pot, but okay. I, I was too, but <laughs> y'all y'all can think of Spider-Man if you want to. I mean, yeah, Spider-Man can be your go-to on that too, but... <laughs> yeah, that's generational. If I said Mary Jane to my mom, she would think the shoes too. If I said it to my husband, he would probably think of Spider-Man. Kira thinks of pot, just like I do. So this is Mary Jane. I'd be like, pot, of course. Isn't that Tom Petty's song about pot? Aren't almost all Tom Petty songs about pot? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true, too. (laughs) Marianne. Robin Hood. Lady. She's a lady. Marianne's a lady. So... When you're figuring out... When you sit down... I was working on something recently where I was like, okay, I've got a character. Well... I did the, this stuff I knew like a long time ago, but when I sat down to initially craft this character, I was like, okay, this is somebody who's got, now the first story I did with this character were not in their point of view. So a lot of this stuff didn't come up. Right. But you still have to figure this stuff out. Is okay. This is somebody who's, who's outgoing, who's easy to get along with, probably has a lot of acquaintances and probably even, you know, the sort of that outside circle of friends is probably pretty big, but probably has a very small number of really close friends. Okay. So I'm going to go, how many? Because those are the ones I need to focus on. Okay. I'm going to go two, two really close friends. So with two really close friends, what do I know about these really close friends? I can't make them all look like this because yes, people can be drawn together by a commonality. So like in this case, I had them all drawn together initially by the fact that they were gay that they met like in you know in circumstances like oh i'm gay too and they kind of banded together about you know being kind of out of touch and being gay together well since they've got that commonality already you can't make them all have a lot of other commonalities on top of it they can't all come from like divorced parents they can't all have the exact same number of siblings or non-siblings so you just gotta kind of work out and then I was careful, though, about how many siblings I gave these guys because I did not want to have to name a bunch of siblings and decide about nieces and nephews and 
my brain just starts to get like, no, I get, I get like named out very quickly. Um, so then beyond that, when I was working on the second story, I was like, I was just limiting myself going, I have to resist bringing in characters because I've got the characters I established in the first story already to deal with. And I've got these two other characters who are new to this story coming on screen. Plus my main character's mother is going to be on screen. So I'd already, these are the, this is a mandatory set of characters I absolutely have to deal with. So any temptation to bring in additional characters was ruthlessly quashed. It's like, no, because I already, the, the list was already big and you have to just be careful to manage what you're doing in terms of that kind of character work. And if you want to practice it, you can even work work on practicing it when it comes to your fan fiction, because do you want, I mean, I've seen fan fiction stories that have nothing but canon character. And if, if a fan fiction story with nothing but canon characters is overwhelming you with the number of characters on screen, that's actually a really big problem. Cause usually fan fiction can throw a lot of characters at you and it not be a big deal. But it's just kind of like, holy crap, this is so many characters. What is going on? And I see that a lot more in f crossovers, like especially big crossovers or big multi-fandom crossovers, where, you know, all the people from every crime drama are all converging on the same crime scene or something. Um, and, you know, you just cannot have you know, all of the CSI teams and the NCIS team and the multiple, you know, law and order teams. I actually haven't read this particular example. So if it exists, please don't shoot me. You can't have them all converging on the same side of a bombing and not do something more with them than just say, oh, the guys from CSI New York are over there. But it's confusing. It's confusing to keep track of who's doing what. And Um, the difference between a minor character and a tertiary character. Let's talk about that. A a minor character, um, you will have a bigger. They're they are a character that will probably have impact on your plot in some way or another. If they don't, why the hell are they in your story? A tertiary character could be a cab driver, or a bartender, or a waitress. And the only time I would put a tertiary character in my character in, uh, in, in my character list is if I give them a name. But you don't often want to give them a name because then you'll end up reusing the same name. But, but if but if you give them a name, you have to put it in your list because you don't want to reuse it later. And then your your reader will be wondering why Julie is waiting tables downtown, but also driving a cab, and she's also the librarian. <laughs> and she's also your second, your minor character's mother. I mean, how did that happen? Julie gets around. Julie is one very busy woman. I hope she's taking her vitamins. So, um, yeah. So tertiary characters are only really important in your character database if you give them a name. Because if you give them a name, you don't want to end up reusing it. Do they need a whole character profile? No. Minor characters do. You might need them more later in, in another um book or um when you're doing your second draft you might have to put two characters together you know blend them because you don't actually need three characters when one would have done the job so you can blend them all together in your rough draft does that sound like a nightmare 
Because it is. That's why it's really good to plan and not to have to do that later. Or if you're not going to plan, keep really careful notes as you go. I, I mean, this is where you get in trouble if you make these decisions on the fly is, and not take notes. Is it bites you in the butt later? Because you have, if you're counting on an astute beta to catch that stuff, you, you might be hoping in vain. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people don't edit in a... Your beta may not be working like... The first time you have a you mentioned something about a character could be something that they looked at four days before they get to the next part because maybe they they didn't have time for three days to look at it. So when you've got you know, Beta's not like a professional editor where they're just sitting down and going through it, you know, in a very methodical fashion and, and maybe it takes them two or three days, but they're still getting through it. And they're often giving it multiple passes so that they can catch those kinds of inconsistencies. Your beta may go through it once and they could have multiple days between times and they sit down with your story. So they may not catch these inconsistencies. And I too often see people make the throwaway comment of that's what a beta's for. And actually it really irritates the fuck out of me because your craft is not your beta's responsibility. And if you're not growing, it's because you're not paying attention to these kinds of details and doing the work to grow. If your craft is stagnating, it's your fault. And don't just assume that your beta is going to solve all your problems for you. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of a tangent. Because somebody mentioned, somebody said something kind of throwaway the other day to me about, well, that's what I've got a beta for. And I actually just kind of said, that's not what you have a beta for. But whatever. Um, okay. And if you're relying on your beta to keep you from having inconsistencies in your story, that's kind of bullshit. And I'm actually probably not talking to you because you're not going to listen anyway. We're, we're actually never talking to you. I mean, not in that mean rude girl way, but like, just we're not talking to you. This is not for you. Because <laughs> you're not going to yes. follow our instructions anywhere, asshole. <laughs> you want to do what you want to do. You always have. You're going to do it anyway, no matter what we say. So, And if you're feeling judged, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I need to stop naming my character shit I can't pronounce. Probably a good choice on my part. Ito. 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 <clears throat> well, sometimes you pick up something, like if you're looking for something regional, right? Like you go, okay, I need I need a, a name that would be, would be a surname that's realistic for somebody born in Japan. You might mm -hmm. wind up with a name you have no idea how to pronounce. Odds are. I mean, for me, <laughs> odds are. I mean, I've been to Japan too, so but odds are I'm not going to know how to pronounce it. So... Um, that's just, that sometimes that's just going to happen. So, I, don't think, I don't think I'll ever name a character Siobhan because uh, for starters, it took me like, I don't know, 30 years to figure out how to pronounce Siobhan, but I would want to, uh, in my, when I see it, it doesn't look the way I know it's pronounced and it, it causes a really bad disconnect in my head. So I would never name a character. How do you spell it? It's, I think it's like that or something. Oh, oh it, I, that is not how I said that. Really, that—that's yeah. how you say it. One more time for me, Siobhan. Wow, I never would have thought. Okay, see why I wouldn't name a character that. See, because I would only see it on 
pay on the page and in my head it'd be Siobhan, right? Which is how I pronounced it for like 30 years or so. So it's only like, I only have like 15 years of getting it pronounced correctly. See, I always pronounce it so, um, Sobon in my head. Sobon? Sobon. No, it's like, it's Siobhan. So yeah. I had to meet somebody named that to figure out how to pronounce it. I could, I just never, whatever I heard, cause like whatever I heard on TV, somebody, um, Whenever I heard somebody on TV named Siobhan, I assumed it was it was spelled differently than that, right? So anyway, so yeah, but but that's why I would not have a character named that because I wouldn't be able to deal with the disconnect in my head of you know thirty years of mispronunciation. <laughs> yes. I'm just letting them know because they don't they don't know apparently since they keep using big capitalized letters in my chat room. You can offset it with asterisks or underscores. A double asterisk will give you bold. Single asterisk will give you italics. Also, an underscore gives you an italic. No, that one didn't work. I'll have to figure out how to get the strike through. There is a way to do a strike through, but I have to. Hmm. I've seen I'll, it. I'll, 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 I'll have to look it up. I'll have to look it up. Because she's a mean ass. Because I was apparently mean to Lady Holder earlier by putting her in the corner. Although she she did learn, um, she did earn it. Or learn I, it. She earned it. I earned it. No, I'm not. Lady Holder earned it. Although honestly, in retrospect, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm pretty sure what Voldemort did is actually worse. I mean, except for the public circumstances, who caught him? I, I think I think an employee noticed it, noticed this this plushy molestation spree in Target. Um, they called the police and he was arrested. But <laughs> but one of the plushies that was violated was a, a unicorn. <laughs> and I tell the bitches about this and lady holder brings up Voldemort so I sent her to the corner I mean how'd you do that Ellie uh it's uh it, it at least it wasn't a penguin uh yes it, it no yes anyway so yes there was there was a um so it's oh. a double no spaces okay that didn't work for me what are those? Oh, those no, are tildes. Those are those are tildes. Okay. Sweet. Now just, we know. It, the words are so small. The little the symbols are so small that I have to like 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 all up on my monitor to be able to see that that's a tilde and not a dash, or a hyphen rather. Okay, so let's switch from the traditional novel to, um, and I think the novel and the novella works the same, except for honestly, um, with a novella you have less plot, you have less characters. And really, in a novella, your max, I mean, anything under 40K, your max should be two POVs. Outside of special fandom, you know, fandom circumstances. I mean, I can't think of any. <laughs> well, you're, you're saying you're saying based on word length. Word yeah, count. I mean. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if it's short, yeah, if it's under novella length, it don't 
And honestly, for me, if I'm under 20K, I try not to even have... I've, I've, I've occasionally done more than... I've done occasionally done two points of view when it's 20K or less, but I'm much more comfortable these days with a single point of view for a shorter story because I feel like the, the narrative is richer if I stick in one, one headspace. So, I mean, yeah, you can do two, but for me, I feel like it's more... Um, I think the narrative is more impactful to tell it from one point of view, if possible, when it's under 20K. Oh, I just did but, 3, yeah. 3K that was one point of view. It depends, near, you know, honestly, on what your plot needs. Yeah, because um, sometimes you need another point of view. You do need both. But, when, but you're, I, when you're doing something really intimate like a romance, it's really important to keep your narrative rich and tight which means you don't want three or four povs in a romance unless there are three people in the romance <laughs> and if there are three people in the romance you get one point of view or you get three you don't get two them's the rules because <laughs> it otherwise you're doing you're, you're saying something really unfortunate if you go into if you have a threesome and you've got two people you're giving your point of view to two of those three characters but not the third it is jarring as fuck to not know what the other person is not getting in their head it's like why are we segregating this with third character what's going on so you could do it from one you could tell a romance from one person's point of view but if you've got three main characters you need to tell it from three or you need to tell it from one but you don't tell it from two well, no, that doesn't have a problem. Uh, that's a completely separate issue about um, self-reflective statements that we could talk about self-reflective statements. Because if, if your POV is clear, you don't have to say that your POV character is the character doing the observing because it's obvious. So that's that you're putting in a redundancy that is unnecessary. It's just like in first person. Um, you wouldn't want to say, I watched Susan walk across the room. You would want to say, Susan walked across the room. Right. Because you don't, need to, reflect implied. Right. You don't need to reflect back on the POV character. But in third person, that's that's it's the point. It's even easier. In third person, if this is, where it's, this is where it's important that your POV be clear. Is if it's clear who your POV character is, it's the same thing, right? You wouldn't say, you know... You wouldn't Sarah say Tony watched walked Susan walk across the room. You would say Susan walked across walked. the room. Right. Because Kira is obviously watching Susan walk across the room. Because it's Kira's point of view. And it, it, you can establish who your POV character is in, uh, in you know, one sentence at the start of your scene. So once you've got, if as long as you're staying in, you're not head hopping, you don't have to worry about the clunkiness of those self-reflective statements because you shouldn't be using self-reflective statements. Because you don't need to reflect back on who your POV character is constantly. And if you are, then you have a deeper problem with POV than even you think you do. Right. So, and in that case, you probably need to practice writing in first person by yourself until you get it right. That's how I did it. But a lot of people who write first person do self-reflective statements. And it is so clunky. It it is It actually, it really is hard on the pace, right? Because you don't, First person, there is one point of view, and it's super obvious. So saying, you know, I heard Tom whisper in my ear, duh, who else is going to hear it? 
But the best way to not head hop is to not head hop. Give yourself one POV, whether it be in first person or third person. And that is the only way to break yourself from head hopping. And if you can't do it for a whole narrative, do it for a whole scene. Like, you cannot change POV during the scene. Period. Discipline. You have to be able to stay in one point of view before you can give yourself the freedom to have multiple points of view in a scene. And actually, by multiple points of view in a scene, I mean two. Right. And you, you do one, unless it's a very, very long scene, you do one mean mid-scene transition, and that's all you get. If it's like a court scene, you might be able to do one every couple thousand words. But it's, 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 you have to carry a POV for several pages before you can change again. Otherwise, you're just head hopping. Um, in the modern fiction narrative, you are expected, basically, in most circumstances, to write in third-person past tense. Most books published in the fiction market are written in third-person past tense. There are exceptions. There are first-person narratives. Um, there are present tense narratives. It happens. It is especially um, popular, I think, in YA for the first person and for the present tense. But in the adult fiction market, the third-person narrative is the most popular. Uh, so mastering that should be the number one goal of every writer listening to this podcast because if you can't master the third person past tense that that's where you need to stay you need to stay in that lane do you get it yeah and it's just a matter of practice if you're used to writing present tense it's just practice to go past tense it's just you gotta just to keep doing it and doing it and keep correcting your tenses and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it um because that's the only way to do, but um, to, to get it better. I have been writing for thirty-three years, um, coming up in December, and every once in a while, I'll slip into present tense when I'm writing sex. Yeah, I do that with anything I'm visualizing very intently, which is usually action scenes or sex. Well, sex is a type of action scene, right? But this is completely off our topic for the podcast. Um, yeah. Let, let's go to the series format as far as that goes. And um, we'll do a writer's table um, sometime over the weekend. And we can talk about these um, these topics in depth, uh, I guess. I mean, but I gave you some articles, Kai. Did you read all those articles I gave you? Okay. I'm going to give you a quiz later. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> She's on her own with that, with that mission. <laughs> One of the reasons why I have problems writing action is because of um, the, it often reads like stereo instructions. Like, <laughs> it's just, it just always feels awkward. The only thing to me that's, one of the only things to me that's better in, in written form in terms of for explaining versus having, I, I learn better like a dialogue, an interactive dialogue typically. And so the only exception to that, to me, that for me of the basics is passive versus active voice um because that is just you, you need to dig in and di dissect the language and sentence structure and that is just something that does not go well with somebody explaining it to you over the radio i don't even with it 
think she just broke my brain. You gotta do the work. Okay, so that... Okay. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> okay. You went the same place? Yeah, I was like... I don't understand what that means. Number one, there is no there is no room for passive language in your fiction narrative, and there is no room for formal language, um, formal writing in your language, in in um in your fiction narrative. Well, but stilted is not the same thing as formal. Formal formal writing style is academic. It's it, it's it's, your, it's a dissertation. It's a dissertation. <laughs> it's legal documents. It's medical. You know, it's it's a very different. So, um, but if your if your fiction narrative comes off as a little bit stiff because you haven't learned how to be casual, it doesn't mean actually mean that your writing is formal. That's not, otherwise, it wouldn't even remotely be come fiction. across. Okay, so um, Green, I'm I've captured this thing that you mentioned about um, writing like somebody's in a. Screenplay, and we'll we'll talk about that this weekend if we can. Okay. Well, well, Green, you have an excuse if English isn't even your third language. Bless your heart, you do great. <laughs> so, you know, just on that one more thing on that topic, the the best way to to solve this issue with with stiff writing is to read and to write. Read and write. Read and write. This is work you have to do. This is not a skill. There's no magic bullet. This is not a skill that can be learned in five minutes. It's not a skill that I could teach you over a podcast. This is a skill that you will have to hone on your own. And it is the work of your career. Of your life. Because my writing grows and changes every day. With every new experience I have, with every conversation I have, with um, every project that I complete, I am a different writer than I was five years ago. And I would expect myself to be. The day I look back on something I wrote six months or a year before and I don't see a significant change in, my, in, in myself as a writer, my personal change is the day I feel like a failure. Because I want to grow and change every single day as a writer. My craft is really super important to me. So, um, and I don't want to look back. I want to keep going forward and keep growing and changing. So I'm going to do the work every day. I'm going to read. I'm going to write. I'm going to absorb. I'm going to look at craft books. I'm going to listen to other writers talk about their craft and how they construct stories because that's how you do it. That's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong, but I'm not. <laughs> so, writing in a series. One of the reasons why writing in an episode series is so attractive is that you can have a large ensemble cast because each episode can be kind of like focused on a set, a set of characters without diluting the overall narrative of your work. If you look at the, at the structure of Sentinels of Atlantis, that I did that there is that there are episodes that are focused on characters like Bates and um, uh, Markham and uh, just uh, Peter. 
um, uh, I, I'm actually really fond of the character work I did in the Queen. The Queen remains my favorite, and that's Miko's story, um, where where Miko comes into her own as a guide and as a member of John's um, pride. Um, it's um, it's a moment for her, for her, and, and it felt like a huge moment in the series, which is why I always say it's the climax of the first season of Sentinels of Atlantis, because um, Miko at the beginning of that story is is revealing to um, to the reader all of her secrets, all of her um, her fears and her wants and desires, and um, at the heart of it, she she has to balance in the end um, her life her physical life versus the potential of losing her freedom on earth because if she's revealed as a guide because of how guides are treated in, in her home country. And so being able to focus on her like that as a character was really rewarding. And it's not something I could have done in a novel, but it was something that was really easy to do in the episode format for Sentinels of Atlantis because the narrative is um, structured differently. So I could move around to different characters and have different experiences and have different bonding experiences and mating experiences and uh, riding feral baits from Graham's point of view was really awesome because he's on that altar and he's naked and he can feel, you know, and he woke Graham, um, 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 he woke Dean up. He, um, um, he had to make a choice, right? He had to make a choice between his own life and the potential, you know, the sentinel that that was that was supposed to be his and um and he pushed dean into a feral sentinel drive which is an immense thing to do for an unbonded guide <laughs> you know? so and that's my favorite episode <laughs> i really enjoyed it and i got some beautiful art out of it too it's my favorite art too it's really great but and but i wouldn't have been able to do that in a novel Unless the whole novel was about Dean, right? But because of the way, because it's the way the episodes were created, I had a, I had a lot of opportunity to explore various characters and circumstances that I wouldn't have in in a traditional novel format. And so, honestly, um, there, there's a lot of freedom there um, when you're writing a series like Sentinels of Atlantis that I did not have in conversely in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond because I tried to keep. It focused on Harry and his journey as he returned to Britain um, and Hermione's um, growth um, as she's exposed to both her soulmate and to a greater, a larger magical world. Because she goes from someone who is a little afraid of her magic to leading. By the end of it, she's retrieved Harry's soul from the afterlife in a huge ritual. Because the Hermione you first meet couldn't have done that. Her own fears would have prevented it. So her her growth um, required a lot of concentration on my part. So I didn't get to spread out as much as I did um, like I did in Sentinels of Atlantis. So. Yeah. Um, and you also in Ties of Bind it enabled you to spread out to like some to some side characters, give mm -hmm. to zoom in on some of your minor characters and give them a more rich storyline because something you can't really do in a novel. You know, you may have a 
if you have a really interesting minor character in a novel that people really like, odds are you're going to write a separate novel about that person. You're not usually going to have like a really rich storyline for them because you would have that kind of big subplot um, with a non with a with a character you shouldn't have, that shouldn't have a POV um, can really throw your story way off. Affect your pacing, dilute your narrative. It can it can affect the intimacy in a romance story. Um, so I think that's one of the one of the coolest things about episode work is. Even if you've got a central character, it allows you or a central pair. It allows you to to treat it like a, like a TV series where, yes, your main characters may be this person and this person, John and Rodney, for instance. But the episode allows you to have an episode that focuses on a, a secondary character um, and do something really interesting with them. And then you may get like plot lines you can pull in, you know, into your your main character arc which you couldn't do in a novel and sometimes i make that decision about is this going to be as episodic or a series of novellas or a series of short stories or whatever um based upon how many points of view i think i want and sometimes it is want right like it's like some stories it's need it's like i need all these points of view um and sometimes it's a big old id fic and you just want to lose your mind and that is perfectly okay to do in fandom <laughs> You, you go you do you now we we have talked in other instances about like um there are some circumstances typically not romance where you might reasonably have more than two points of view um but that's a very specific kind of thing um where like if you've got like characters like let's say you've got four groups of characters there's been a zombie apocalypse and you've got you're you're you've got four or five groups of characters moving together right and you're focusing on each you're jumping around to each of their journey moving back to wherever cheyenne mountain um they're trying to all get back to cheyenne mountain and it's you don't want to be redundant between these things but you're skipping around and you're showing okay when they learn about this we're going to see it from this group and when you know they drop a when they drop a bomb on houston we're going to see about it from this group and when they do this we're going to see it from this group's point of view but you get one point of view character in each group right each group gets a pov that's the way it goes and then, then if there's five groups you've got five points of view but that is not a romance that's a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and that is, um, I think, technically urban fantasy? Um, yeah, probably. Or horror, depending on the level of zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, just, just how extra are you with your descriptions? <laughs> we need to know. I really do want to know ahead of time because, you know. I can handle a moderate level of zombie speaking of i saw a tag today in hannibal and it's a normal amount of murder and of a, a nor what a normal <laughs> amount of murder <laughs> so that's that's canon typical murder right is what they're saying <laughs> canon typical murder yeah we use canon typical violence canon typical Shenanigans, canon typical. I actually used a, a warning as canon typical stuff. Canon typical stuff. <laughs> Don't touch my stuff. I 
I changed it, but that was apparently the initial warning I put on the opening le- relay of the feeding frenzy was canon typical stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Violence, mayhem, chaos, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. <laughs> it's true. This man has no dick. <laughs> and if you don't get that, you don't deserve to. Okay. Um, but speaking of dick, um, today in my site, I got a um, a question. Now, in my bio, uh, it it says I lead a, a cult of cock worshippers on Facebook, or just just in just in general. I think now, and uh, I had a commenter ask me whose cock that we worship. I'm like, are you volunteering? I started to get one of Az's doom dicks to, to respond with, but then I thought, do I really want a doom dick on my in, in in my comment section on the Ask Me Anything page? Well, but do you also want to commit to one dick? Right. I don't want to commit to one dick. Actually, I don't want to commit to any dick, but okay. <laughs> it just seems it just seemed rude. I deleted it, but I'm like, come on now. <laughs> I should have got that big stone dick from that um for that fertility clinic. Or you remember that what was that picture we were looking at the other day that was like the it was like that enormous wooden thing. It was like the size of a boat. Yeah, it was it was in that fertility clinic in Asia. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like that's you could just send in that this is the dick. This this is the dick that we This is our altar. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I didn't approve it. I deleted it because come on now. Come on. Come on. Um I didn't want him volunteering so, his dick. Right. So when it comes to series work, I think the more important question becomes you still have to deal with in every episode how many characters do you need? And even in a series work where you are getting all up in your id and you're giving yourself room to have more points of view, you still don't want to have more characters than you need. Um, you have a little bit more room, but if you give yourself too much room, are you don't you don't want to fall into the trap of giving them all subplots and side arcs for all of these people because your series will never end. And we will never advocate, at least I will never advocate, Kira might, but I will never advocate taking an approach to a story where you're setting yourself up for it to be never ending. Because I mean, if you want to write a soap opera, you go ahead and write a soap opera. But you do you. I, I probably won't read it. <laughs> no. Because one of the goals is to finish stuff, right? One of the, that's one of our goals: finish a season of your your show, or finish um, a finish your short story, or that's one of the biggest thematic things from people is struggles finishing whether for whatever reason it is because they get distracted by something else because they have a hard time with motivation because they they have a hard time with falling action because they're they don't find their plot holes till they stumble across them there's so many different things we talk about that are about trying to get to the end and how to problem solve and troubleshoot getting to the end of your story so giving people advice you know that leads them to, to making their stories bigger and longer and potentially not finishing. It seems like I want to, I want to give caution when we talk about, you know, series work gives you room to give more characters because the more characters you put in, the more you have to work with them. 
we've we've talked in the past about how I, I would have a hard time trying to figure out how Panzer would create something like like Sentinels of Atlantis because that was a lot of fucking work, right? Um, but what I would say is if you want to write a big series like that and you are a pantser, that you need to at least give yourself some kind of structure. And if that structure is just a timeline, say you're going to do 10 episodes and you're going to give, just write yourself a timeline with 10 events, 10 simple events, um, to, um, to give yourself some kind of structure. Mm-hmm. Give yourself 10 events and give yourself a word count goal for each one of them. Like a maximum, not a minimum. <laughs> like 5 to 10k. And then look at your events and then and then figure out your consequences for each one of those events. And you might have to change the events based on what you write because you're pantsing it. But, um, so you might want to do your timeline in Word or something. I don't know. Um, but just having a timeline, I think, would give you some structure and um, give you um, give you goals, which maybe you would find comforting. Comforting. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you want to finish, you just because that's one of the struggle. That's one of the things I talk with a lot of people I know who are pantsers that they struggle with is the finishing. They want to be able to finish. They, they don't know how to make that happen. Um, and if you're a pantser and you're going to, and pantsing is part of your creative process, you got to figure out where you can rein yourself in. And everywhere you can rein yourself in and give yourself some structure, you should. So if if you have a, like, you're like I cannot plan my actual plot in advance. If that is a hard no for you, then make yourself have the discipline to write down every decision you make as you make it. Make yourself have that discipline. Even if you can't give yourself, even if you can't plot something out, okay? So you're going to make yourself, make it easier on yourself if you go, look, this is, this is, this is the thing I have to do it just this way, is then don't give yourself permission to be full-on extra pantser in every aspect. Make yourself write down all of your character. You, yeah, okay, you're going to be the person who decides your character traits on the fly, but make yourself fill out that character bio when you sit down to fill it out, when you sit down to make those decisions, right? And if you don't rein yourself in somewhere, it's never going to get any better. Plotters have the same issue. It's just different kinds of issues, right? Plotters have issues with like, I don't know how to, you know, deal with these kinds of plot holes or whatever. And, and you have to pull yourself in and give yourself a discipline around certain things in order to get those things you struggle with to make them better. You've got to shore yourself up where you can to make those things work better. And it's not any different for pantsers. So I can give you all the advice in the world, but sometimes people just don't want to change anything. They want a magic bullet, but they don't want to fix or change a single thing in their process. And it isn't going to happen ever because if it was going to work without making any changes, it would already work. I guess there comes a point when you have to decide if you are a hobby writer or if you are a writer. Writers are born. It's in you. Shaping your craft and honing your craft is work. If you don't want to do that work, if you want to be um, to continue to be a comforting hobby that you retreat into when you're stressed out or when you're bored, you just want to entertain yourself and you want to entertain others, but you don't want to grow, that is fine. That is fine. But you need to admit that to yourself. 
And if you don't, if you're not ready to admit that to yourself, that means you're not ready to stop trying. So you need to sit your ass down and do some work. Because the only one who can prove you is you. Anyways, uh, we're hitting along the lines of um, midnight for me. And I'm honestly, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> so. Then you should absolutely go to bed. <laughs> but if, if anybody has any follow-up questions about how many characters do you need? It's a very difficult topic because it's so, it depends. Um, drop them in the ask a question for the podcast library and we can tack those onto our writer's table. Yeah, but also ask yourself, how many do characters do I need to tell the story? Do I need, use it, really, really grab onto the nuance of the word need. Because it, it's not how many characters do I want. want. It's how many characters do I need? So work on the nuance of the word need and think about it. But you need to you, breathe. You want to eat cake. You need food. You want to eat cake. <laughs> well, that, that works too. So how many of your characters are actually cake? Think about it. Um, I hope you guys have a fantastic week. And remember, you have basically 24-hour-ish if you're in the chat room right now, to get your project files in. And... 48. 48. Well, it's midnight for me. But it's the 20th, 24th and the 25th. That's 48 hours. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I guess I'll give you all the 25th. I don't mean, you know, I don't want to. To be perfectly honest. Because you've had all fucking months. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Where the hell's Chad? Um, anyways, um, you guys have a fantastic evening and we shall catch you later. Say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.